you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I asked Grant to do that song a couple of months ago. I think when he arrived, I kind of had it on a list saying, hey, on this day, I want to make sure we have this, uh, this song ready. Because I wanted you to kind of begin thinking with the end in mind. Uh, you, you saw the lyrics to this song, and we're all uh, way too familiar with with divorce in our culture and our society, uh, the impact it's having upon families uh, within our nation. And so with that end in mind, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about one of the biggest dangers uh, that are facing marriages today. I mean, it undermines relationships, has such a detrimental effect. And I want to talk about that in light of applying this question we've been asking all month. I'm going to wrap up this series today on the best question ever. We've been looking at issues of morality. Last week talked about uh, alcohol. And this morning, I want to look at this uh, issue facing marriages in our society today. And we have kind of landed here in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I didn't really plan and intend it that way. I think the reason we wound up here is because that first century, that, that, that church at Corinth parallels the church in America in so many ways. You see, that church was a group of believers who were gathered together for the purpose of, of trying to share the gospel and reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. But the society and the culture that these believers lived in was very pagan, it was very secular, it was an incredibly worldly society and culture that those believers were living in. And immorality uh, and sinfulness of all kinds were rampant in the city of Corinth. And there were also a number of false teachers who were bringing in these lies and these mistruths and these half-truths and who were leading many of the believers at the church in Corinth astray. They were teaching things contrary to God's word. Now, I told you it sounds like a lot like the church in America today. That could be a description of what the American church is realizing or is experiencing today. And to top it all off, the believers in the church at Corinth had missed the mark big time. As you read through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians to see the things that Paul addressed to these believers and the things he rebuked them for, you're like, wow, they, they really were missing the mark when it came to pursuing godliness and holiness uh, in their lives before Christ. And those major sins drew a stinging rebuke and harsh criticism and stern warnings from the apostle Paul. And he pulled no punches in telling them, you know better than that. You know that you shouldn't be doing these things, so basically, stop it. Stop doing these things because it's hindering you. It's hurting your impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul mints no words in telling them that they knew uh, what they were supposed to be doing in spreading the gospel and to leave these areas of sin behind. And so the topic we come to in 1 Corinthians 6 is another one that is crippling the church in America today. And in addition to its impact in the church, it is wreaking havoc in the personal lives and in the families of millions and millions of believers in America and around the world. And unfortunately, I feel like there are so many people in the church and especially outside the church, but I'm talking to those in the church today who don't seem to be all that concerned about it. Because honestly, if we were concerned about it, we would be much more proactive. We would be much more uh, taking a lot more initiative in guarding and protecting ourselves from this area of sinfulness and from this war that has been waged upon God's people within the church. But many people don't fear it. 
They, they don't think twice about it. And as a result, are leaving themselves unprotected and vulnerable to the dangers in this area. It's kind of like our lack of concern for the most dangerous animal in the world. If I were to ask you, what's the most deadly animal in the world? Our mind goes to, to big, scary things. Crocodiles, alligators, you know, venomous snakes, spiders. Ooh, those heebie-jeebies of those spiders. The poison dart frog, you know, you may have heard that one. Rhinoceros, elephants, hippopotamuses. Is hippopotamuses or ease, ease on the end of it? Anyway, did you know hippos are dangerous, by the way? You're going, a hippo, yeah, they're, they're very dangerous. But it's none of those big, big, scary things. You know, lions and tigers and bears, right? That, that, no, it, it's the most deadly animal in the world, responsible for over 2 million human deaths a year. Beware the deadly mosquito. Yeah. The mosquito kills more people around the world every year than any other thing on the face of the planet. Well, that's odd. Well, I mean, when you, we understand it carries parasites and all the, and it floats person to person. And so we, yeah, okay, we can see that. But we don't think of the mosquito as being very deadly, do we? We think of it as annoying, but we don't fear the mosquito. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's teaching on an issue that's insidious. Yet it's very subtle. It's menacing and it's incredibly dangerous. Now the thing Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, it's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, God created it and gave it to humans as a wonderful, precious gift that that they are able to enjoy within his parameters and the guidelines that he establishes. It's not something that's ugly or undesirable. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is actually true. It's very desirable, which is part of the reason that it is so uh, destructive is because there's a natural pull within human beings to, to, toward this thing. The danger comes with this issue because of the repercussions and the devastation that are caused by not exercising this in the way God designed it. When we step outside of God's boundaries, God's guidelines and parameters for this particular out area of our lives, the results are devastating for us personally and for millions and millions of people around us in every society and every culture. Not following God's guidelines in this area has negative physical consequences. Not following God's guidelines in this area has negative emotional consequences. Not following God's guidelines in this area has negative psychological consequences. And not following God's guidelines in this area has negative spiritual consequences. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12 and see Paul's warning to not overlook what I kind of like in the deadly mosquito of sins. It may not look or sound dangerous, but if not handled properly, it can and it will wreak havoc in every relationship in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. Hey, have we heard that? Well, something similar. It's in in chapter 10. He repeats this phrase again. All things are lawful for me, he goes on, but I will not be enslaved 
by anything. I think it's interesting that Paul would use that word enslaved right there. I mean, that's not a friendly, that's not a neutral term. If something enslaves you, it it forces you. I mean, it it masters, it rules over you. So you say, wow, I wouldn't want to be enslaved by something. I wouldn't want to give myself to something that can control my life, that that could be in the driver's seat of my choices and my decisions and and leading me down paths and in directions that that I don't want to go. I wouldn't want to be enslaved to anything. So this sounds like something that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Paul goes on to say in verse 13, this is a, you see a quote, uh, depending on the translation you're using, Paul is using this quote that the uh, Corinthian believers were using. This was their justification and rationalization in this area. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the Corinthians were using this argument. They were comparing it to to our desire for hunger and for food. We get hungry, we have hunger pangs, and God has given us food. So we eat, right? We satisfy the crave, the urge by eating. We're created that way. The logic that they were thinking is, well, we have these other desires. We have these other urges within us. And God has created man and woman. And there, there's it, it's something that's pleasurable. It's, it's enjoyable. Therefore, if God's given us the urge and he's created both genders, we should enjoy this gift that God has given to us. It's just a, part, a natural part of who we are. But Paul says, hold your horses just a second. We're talking earthly here. Food and stomach is an earthly, temporal, temporary thing. Your body is not. Just as God has raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise you from the dead in a glorified body. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. Your body is a temple and you are to honor God with your body. And that could apply to your food choices and and the choices we make. But here he's applying it to this area of sexual immorality. That we guard our bodies and that we remember that the Lord lives within our bodies and he will one day raise up the bodies of those who are in him to live with him forever. And he wants those glorified bodies to reflect his love and his purity and his holiness. He continues in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We as individuals make up the body of Christ, the church. Thinking through that analogy, Paul then says, shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. And you go, well, hold on. That's a big leap here. What's he talking about this prostitute thing? Well, I told you they lived in an incredibly pagan and secular society. Part of the pagan society and culture for worship and their religions included this thing called temple prostitution. And it is what you think in your mind that it is. Individuals went to a house or a location, a place of worship, and united with men and women there as part of their religious leadership in order to seek their God's blessing upon fertility for for human reproduction or for agricultural crop growth. That was a part of worship for them in that day. Now, I graduated from seminary with a master's degree, and one of my areas of emphasis in that was in church growth. And I guarantee you, we never discussed this church growth strategy. 
never once came up in conversation in all my classes and all my year of study. Didn't happen, all right? I mean, you talk about church growth, those places were hopping in that day and time, all right? It was a huge part of that fabric and that culture. So either the Corinthian believers were, were wanting to or had already mixed this practice into the early church worship, or they were just very free in their expressions of sexuality, and much of that day included prostitution at, at all levels and in many ways. And Paul says, would we do this? If this is the body of Christ, would we unite? Would you think of uniting the Lord Jesus in that way with this kind of person and, and in this setting? Never, Paul says. We wouldn't do that. Yet that's part of what he's admonishing and challenging this church to not do. He says, stop it. Stop doing what you're doing. You are part of the body of Christ and you are to honor that body of Christ and you honor that body of Christ by your choices, your decisions, and your actions. That's how you honor Christ and his body. And so he elaborates and he gives us this why here with with some strong warnings about sexual immorality. He says, uh, he goes on in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so there's this warning about sexual immorality. And you see, the gift of human sexuality isn't just a physical act. It is a spiritual act that unites two people at the deepest, most intimate level. That's the mystery Paul uses to talk about of the two becoming one flesh. There's this uniting, this joining together. That's more than just a physical uniting. It is a spiritual, it is an intimate connection. And that's why this special gift that God has given us, he said, it is only to be shared with the man or the woman whom you have committed to share the rest of your life with. You are committed to. And you are, you are given to this person and this person only, and you share this very special, unique part of life with that person. I brought this up. It's not that I'm, I'm worried about my nourishment this morning, but I wanted to. And I hope somebody chewing doesn't gross you out, because that's like horrible for me, but it's in my head and it's through the microphone for you. But if you walked into Martin's, oh, juicy. If you walked into Martin's and we're walking by the apple section looking for an apple, are you going to pick this one up? Probably not. Now, here's the thing. I talk about giving this, this special part of ourself. There's part of this apple that's gone. You want me to put it back on there? It's not going to help. It's gone forever. It's gone forever. We give this most special, intimate part of who we are to another person sexually. Now, I'm going to come back in a minute. So some of you already, I'm not saying here, who would want this apple? It's gross. It's because you're thinking in your minds, you know what he just said about me? He was just saying about my, hold on, just pause that for a moment. I'll talk about that. What I want you to understand is that this most intimate part of who we are is given to another person. That's why God says when you unite in marriage and you have committed and you've given yourself wholly and completely, then you share this part of yourself because that person who's committed themselves to you will cherish, 
will honor, will protect. They will treat as sacred the special part of you, this gift that you have given to them as well. And then Paul moves into this warning on the topic. And it is short and it is sweet and it is to the point. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Bam, there it is. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, he says, a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, he says. Do you know what flee means? It means to get away from something, generally at a rapid rate of speed. If you find yourself out in the middle of a cow pasture one night and you look up and you notice a raging bull running at you full steam ahead, do you know what you're going to do? You're not going to mosey away from that thing. You're not going to meander away from that thing. What are you going to do? You're going to flee. You're going to run wide open as fast as you can. And in a zigzag because they can't cut as quick, okay? So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It, 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 zigzag or not, get away from it, okay? Flee that bad boy who's coming at you. We understand this concept of flee. And that's what Paul says we should do with sexual immorality. He doesn't say sexuality. He says sexual immorality. Because again, sexuality is a good thing. God gave it as a gift for a husband and wife to enjoy in the confines of a marriage relationship. As a matter of fact, it's such a precious gift that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says husbands and wives are to give themselves to one another in that way, in that area, and it's to be enjoyable for them. And the only time they should actually not be giving themselves to one another in that way is when they're taking a set time to pray, but then they should come back together so that Satan doesn't tempt them any longer. And all the husbands are going, that's in 1 Corinthians 7? What? Wait a minute. I didn't know that was in the Bible. It's the sexual immorality, the expressions of of sex outside of the marriage in every way, shape, or form that we are to flee and run away from. Now, I admit this. I want you guys to know clearly up front. Some of the things that I'm going to share with you are countercultural. I wasn't born yesterday, and I don't live in a cave. I'm going to share a few things with you here as we talk about this asking what's the wise thing to do and applying it, that people in our world, in our culture today, will laugh at, they will mock, they will ridicule, they'll spoof on Saturday Night Live or Mad TV and all this kind of stuff. They will say that is the most ridiculous stuff I've ever heard in my life. And you know what I say? Who cares? What we're talking about here is God's word. What God's word says and being obedient to his word, whether the world likes it or not, whether the world agrees with it or not, whether the world scoffs or ridicules or mocks it or not. We're talking about being obedient and honoring God with lives that are holy and pure before him by putting into practice the standards and the commands and the principles that he has given us in his word. 
This is what God's word says. You just heard me say, flee from sexual immorality and the warnings and the charges against that. The problem, I think, is that we don't fear this issue very much, just like we don't fear the mosquito. And yet this issue subtly and quietly moves in, sets up camps in our lives, and it does enslave us. It does control and manipulate us in our lives. And it mercilessly ruins life after life and family after family and relationship after relationship. So what is the wise thing to do then in this area? If we apply that question to this topic, it appears then that the wisest thing for us to do would be to stay as far away from sexual immorality as possible so we're not sucked into it and allow it to destroy our lives and the lives of those around us as a result. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned setting boundaries or hedges around areas, dangerous areas of our lives so that we didn't fall into those. You remember we talking about this? If there's a hole, there's a pit. What's the best way to not fall into it? Don't get close to it, all right? You know, the, the Grand Canyon, you live in Virginia. You're not going to fall in the Grand Canyon probably this afternoon just by walking around your backyard. You don't live close to it, all right? So don't get close to these pits and these areas of danger in our lives. So I want to talk to you this morning about a couple of boundaries. These are some of these are ones that I've set up in my life. Others are things that I've read and have gleaned in places. But as we talk about not getting too close to the line, these are some ways that you can set up boundaries. And I talked about setting up boundaries that should you slip over the line aren't fatal. They aren't relationship and life altering or life changing. But as I talk through these things, I encourage you to think about them to pray about them in your own life. If you're married, you may want to talk through these with your spouse. Uh, If you're married or even if you're unmarried, have an accountability partner. You may want to talk to them about these areas of your life so that you get some of that accountability and you have people who are help setting some of these safeguards and set some of these boundaries in your life. One, an idea, an example, uh, something that I do practice is to not dine or ride alone in cars or in restaurants, to dine or ride, ride in cars alone with members of the opposite sex. I'm not going to be in a vehicle or in a restaurant having a meal with anyone other than my wife. Just not going to do it. That's not a reaction from an issue or something that's happened in my life. It's a policy that I set in place early in ministry from talking to other pastors who had either fallen or had friends who had fallen in ministry because of these very same issues and getting themselves into situations in very innocent ways. Now, I realize that for some of you, this could create logistical issues or hurdles for you, but consider the damage that will be done if you underestimate the dangers of this situation or you overestimate your ability to resist temptation. I've uttered these words a couple of times in the past few weeks. People say, it won't happen to me. You know, those are famous last words. You know, there, there are a lot of famous last words we're familiar with. You know, the, 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 some of the famous last words of, of a redneck? Hey, y'all, watch this. All right? F- famous last words there. Well, famous last words of many who, who have found themselves that James is laughing. He's, he's heard that before, haven't you? You've said that. I know. I know. Many, many people in, in rehab facilities through the carnage of divorce, and immorality in their lives have said, and we'll tell you, I always thought it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. And yet they found themselves because they didn't set these safeguards and these boundaries in those situations. 
And, and, and it's interesting to me that business persons will say, well, I can't do this. Yet when I talk to business persons, they say, oh, yeah, that kind of stuff is rampant in my industry. I'm like, okay, wait a second. You're sitting here telling me that you know tons of peers and many, many people who say, yeah, that happens all the time. And you say, but I'm not going to set that boundary in my life. Or I'm not going to take the, and set any boundary in my life. I'm like, why would you do that? that that's like the commercial, you know, the Bear Grylls commercial, wearing the meat, you know, running from the wolves. That's what you're doing. You're putting on the meat suit and running from the wolves to say, I know what happens and I'm not going to set up any safeguards. I don't understand the logic in that. What's the wise thing? How is that a wise thing to not have some kind of a boundary with it? And I, talk, I read an article, I didn't talk to, I read an article about a businessman who, who, who was walking through the same thing. And he said, it was difficult. He said, I had to do some creative thinking. He said, here's what I did. When I was scheduling sales appointments and meetings, I always made sure either I was bringing someone or they were bringing someone. He said, I'll never forget the first time I was meeting, I, I got to a restaurant and the, the female uh, person I was meeting there showed up and we sat, we were talking for a few minutes and we were waiting on the, the third party to, to, to arrive. And he calls me and says, his car had broken down and he can't make it. The guy said, man, I started sweating. He said, I was nervous. I was thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? Here I am in this situation. I said, I wasn't going to get in. And he said, you know, I got through, you know, I, I finished the lunch. I finished the sales presentation. He said, nothing happened. Things were fine. He said, as soon as I got in the car, I grabbed my phone. I'm like, honey, you're not going to believe what happened. And he said, I walked her through and just telling her, you know, what this was. He said, I just felt this huge wave of guilt and shame uh, washing over me. And he said, when I finished, my wife was laughing at me. And I was like, Honey, what are you laughing at? She said, your tone of voice and what you're telling me. She said, you sound like you just robbed a bank and are running from the law. This guy felt so guilty and ashamed that he had, he had broken this, this policy that he had that he called his wife to confess. She said, it's okay. It was beyond your control. I appreciate the stand you've taken for our marriage relationship and for your personal uh, accountability before God. She said, it was beyond your control. Go back to work. We'll talk about it when you get home tonight. I love you. And he was like, Whew, okay. But you see, that's what I'm talking about and setting boundaries so far away that if you step over the line or get in a situation that's over the line, you go, oh, wait a second, wait a second. I want to get back over here, but nothing happened. Now you tell me if the conversation had been different, if that guy'd walk in and said, honey, a couple of months ago, I was meeting, I was having lunch with this lady. Uh, her car had broken down, you know, took her back home. We struck up a relationship that's there. Things have gotten a little too far and uh, we, we've been intimate now. Is that going to be a much different conversation for him to have than calling her and saying, hey, the other guy couldn't show up for lunch. I had lunch alone with a woman today that wasn't you. Whole different conversation, setting boundaries, setting uh, parameters in your life that aren't fatal if you slip over those things. Uh, in, in our office, if you guys have ever been into our office, we have uh, windows and all the doors and there are blinds. If you're needing some study time or whatever, we put the blinds down. Anytime a, a member of the opposite sex in our office, when our admins walk in, they always, we, we pull the blinds and we sit and are able to talk and converse about anything. None of our pastors, you're going to find them after hours being left alone, counseling any, any individuals of the opposite sex. It's a standing rule that if you're leaving and you know that there's someone in there with a member of the opposite sex, you need to stay late that day. You know, we don't want to, you know, impede on your life. And we don't do that often, but that's, that's a safeguard for us that we don't leave individuals alone uh, in counseling situations. I have internet tracking software on every computer that I own at home, at work, that there's, there's software on there. It doesn't block anything, impede where I go, but it sends a report to my wife and to my accountability partner. And if I have clicked on a site that I think is going to show up on there, I'll call them and say, hey, you're going to get a report on me. I was on here, uh, you know, bad link, 
bad click on that. I let them know so they hear it from me, not from my internet software. My accountability partner takes my iPhone and he checks my web browser on that to look at my history. Uh, setting your computer in a public place. Ours is in our den, but, but set it in a public place where people can always see as they walk through what's on your computer screen. Shelly and I are open in all of our digital communications, our Facebooks, our email accounts, any of those things she can get and look through, any uh, voicemail stuff, that anything at all is wide open for her. If she ever says, hey, I want to sit and look through internet history, then we sit down and walk through that. It's totally wide open for that level of trust to be there. We're very transparent in these areas of our lives. And you say, well, isn't that a bit over the top? Isn't that a bit excessive? Uh, This is dated March 25th, 2011. I, I cut this out. It says Facebook divorce stats. Here's the tagline. Couples be wise experts say that caught my attention first be wise because I knew I was doing this series but says couples be wise as surveys that show Facebook uh, being cited more and more in divorce cases should make spouses think twice before friending someone of the opposite sex experts say 81 percent of the nation's top divorce attorneys reported an increase in social networking websites being used as evidence in divorce cases 81 percent Say Facebook is showing up more and more as a leading factor in their divorce. He says one spouse connects online with someone they knew from high school. The person is emotionally available and they start communicating through Facebook within a short amount of time. The sharing of personal stories can lead to a deepened sense of intimacy, which in turn can point the couple in the direction of physical contact. A United Kingdom study cited This as being at least partially to blame in one out of every five divorce cases. 20% of divorce cases beginning to cite Facebook as an introductory point into building and forging a relationship. So it says take common sense safeguards. Uh, And it says here some of those are give your spouse the password and the freedom to check your Facebook at any time. Disable the chat function because you can keep a record with no accountability and tracking there. You can set it to forward your messages to someone else's email who can serve as an accountability partner. Uh, It says don't accept a past romantic interest friend request or sender request unless discussing it with your spouse. And it says this. This is the quote. Facebook is not evil. Facebook is not evil, but as with all forms of technology, we have to be wise in how we use them. What's the wise thing to do? It's to be safe. It's to set boundaries, safeguards, parameters in your life. And I want to tell you something. If this is an area in your life where trust has been violated, that you've struggled in this areas before, you need to do these things because of that. It is even more important for you to set and establish these type things because of that broken trust in that relationship in your past. And as that trust is restored, then, then, then the transparency Uh, It gets greater. You may back off of those things a little bit, but it's so very important. And I know I've said people are going to say, that's just crazy. That's over the top. That's ridiculous that that somebody would set those those things. And you know what? Again, it doesn't concern me what people think about what I do and how I handle myself in this area. My concern is with my relationship with my wife, my accountability, my relationship with my God, my example for my kids and for the potential damage that can be done there. And for my accountability for you as a church body. I want you to know that, that I practice and, and seek the highest level of accountability in this area because I've seen too many stories and I know too many persons, peers of mine, partners 
fellow pastors in the ministry who are no longer in the ministry because they didn't set safeguards. They were susceptible. And I'm not saying that I'm 100% guaranteed, but I want to make sure I've got every hurdle and every barrier and boundary in my life that I can possibly set up to try and protect my heart and my spirit in this way. Because I'll tell you, one false accusation, and, and ministry could be over for me. One false accusation. Because here's the thing. People will tell you they've heard this, they've heard this, they've heard this. Then when they find out it wasn't true, they don't go back to all those people and go, oh, yeah, by the way, that thing I told you, that didn't really happen. comes out that was false. We don't go back and clean up the mess with that kind of gossip, do we? So it's best to protect and guard ourselves. This is serious stuff, church. And it's so common. It is so publicized. It's so readily available in our culture that we've got to be on our toes constantly because, truthfully, the world is eating our lunch in this area and in these situations. On the back of your insert, I put some resources for you to look through, uh, and I encourage you to, to get and interact with those as you have need in your life and in the life of your family, uh, and share them with others. If you know persons that, that these are issues, these are things, then I encourage you to share these resources with them. Some great information in the resources listed on your bulletin. But when we start applying 1 Corinthians 6.18 to the areas of, of lust and sensuality in our life, it will radically transform what we do, what we don't do, and how we see things. Your media standards will change. Your ideas and your concepts of modesty will change. Parents, hopefully that, that will change. That will impact your relationship and, and things with your kids. In, in, media, in media consumption and in issues of modesty and what you let them wear and the places you let them go and the people that you let them go with and the boundaries you set about being alone with members of the opposite sex. And I'll tell you what, they may not like these things. Actually, they probably won't like these things. If you, if you get serious and begin setting some of these boundaries and these parameters, but you know what? It's about protecting our children from the dangers of the world. We went to the lake this weekend. We spent some time out uh, camping and, and, and riding our wave runner and stuff. You know, the first thing we did when we got the kids out of the van, got ready to get out on the lake, we lathered them up in sunscreen. Come here. You know, we're covering on. They look like the white ghosts running around for a few minutes at 50 SPF, you know, that's on there. Why do we do that? To protect our children from a danger that they wouldn't think about. That They're, they're not thinking about a whole lot, what the sun's going to do to them now or, or, or 15, 30, 40 years in the future. You know what else we did as the sun began to set? Come here, this chemical's good. We put this off on you. You know, we, we covered them with off, and then we all smelled horrible for the next, you know, six hours sleeping in a tent. That's a great thing. Put off on it, all get in a tent together. You know, how, how are we thinking this? You know, make it odorless or something like that. But we do it to protect our children. Parents, you've got to be on You've got to protect your children in this area. Don't underestimate the links that people and things of the world will do and go to in pursuing them. Your kids don't have to go looking for it. It will come knocking on their door over and over and over and over again. And you've got to be there standing guard, helping teach them how to stand guard for these things in their lives. And I could go on and on, just, just time. There, there's not enough time this morning to do that. But, but I, I want to reread this message. that I, I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, and I want to come back to. You know, I took this bite out of the apple, 
and I talked about, you know, who, who's going to want to pick this apple up and, and just the thoughts that can come in. And Satan can use it as, as guilt and shame to say, you know, you're, you're not worthy, you're not loved, and, and these sort of things. But look at what Paul has to say. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I told you a couple of weeks ago, and if you didn't, then that's a key word to circle in that verse there in verse 11. And such were some of you. Paul says, yes, this was your life. This was your past. These may be things in your life and your past. And Paul says, yes, those were there. But look at what he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I want you to know God wants this apple. He loves this apple broken bruised and battered. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. And the Bible says that we, when we are forgiven, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. They are forgotten. They are remembered no more. God is a God of forgiveness and of healing and restoration to broken lives, to those who have stepped over the line, those who have disobeyed his word. You can find that, that mercy and that forgiveness and that healing in your life. Now, there are still you know, consequences of those, some, some emotional and spiritual, psychological, even physical consequences. You know, uh, I told somebody one time that we were just talking about those things like, well, what goes away and what stays? I'm like, well, for example, I said that they had had a child out of wedlock as a, as a young teen mom. And I said, when you're forgiven, the child doesn't disappear. Okay, this, oof, the consequences, there's no child. No, 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 so those things are still there. But no longer are those things counted against us in our relationship with God. We're forgiven. God looks upon us because of what Jesus did, and he sees the purity of Christ, the holiness, the righteousness of Christ, because the Bible says that we are covered with that purity and that righteousness. It is given to us, and our sins are taken away. So I want you to know that today you can experience that forgiveness and that healing and that restoration, that song that that Grant sang earlier, that between two houses. Again, I wanted you to get that picture, but you saw the end part of the verse of this person that had been through divorce that found that one who had held them and walked with them through the midst of that pain and that tragedy, that heartbreak that they had experienced. And that's what God wants to do in your life. And one of the great mysteries of our faith, and I love how God does this, is God is able to take our broken past and bring glory and honor to himself in our present and in our future through that. It's one of the most amazing things to me, how God can take such a broken, tattered mess of my own life, of my sinfulness and my, my lack of obedience to him, and God can use it in a way to share the gospel that others can see how I've experienced what God's done in my life, and they can experience that, and you can do that as well. If you would simply confess and turn from, from your sins, all sins, not just the one we talked of today, and, and come to faith in Christ and receive his death as your substitute. But believers who are here today, it is time we get serious about this issue. We have played with fire way too long, and we've gotten burned over and over and over again. 
We've lied to ourselves about the devastation that it brings, and we've grown way too comfortable with it in our lives. It's a leading cause of divorce, and it is still growing today. So if it is that, why would we not want to take and put safeguards and boundaries in our lives to protect ourselves from going down that path? It's time to get on our knees and ask for strength and deliverance in this area. Mosquitoes are tiny. They seem harmless, but they kill more people than any other creature on the planet. Sexual immorality may feel normal and natural, and most people in the world will tell you it's no big deal. But it's responsible for the destruction of more relationships and lives than we can possibly even account for. And it's time for godly people to stand up for truth, God's truth in our lives and live by the principles outlined in God's word. It's time to ask what's the wise thing to do in this area and then do it.